All that is built nonsense. 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 Okay, we're rolling. <laughs> Hello, everyone. How are you all doing tonight? All right. Um, I just played a card game that I myself introduced to a group, and I got totally fucked over during it. Oh, really? It's a card game. You know Mao? Oh, yeah. God. So I wrote out the rules for now because I wanted people to start thinking about, like, what rules to make. And I included a specific penalty for cheating. And I was just like, I'll just include that in just, like, because why not? Um, which led to one of my friends thinking, which means that cheating is encouraged. Because if there's a penalty for cheating, then that means that there's just a penalty for if you're caught at cheating. You, you can't write the rules down there. I thought the whole point of the game was that nobody knows the rules. I was writing down the rules because I wanted to make it more inclusive for okay. a bunch of people. Well, that, that does yeah. make sense. The way that I was introduced by, to the game was basically uh, somebody sat me and another player down, like gave us both some cards, and then just kind of like stared blankly at us and then challenged us to do something with the cards. That's nuts. Uh, the other thing is, this is the first time that we're playing, so I would have to explain the rules. You know, I'm kind of, like, rethinking of Mao, and honestly, this is a game that I should play. Because, like, I have a circle of people who gamble, and yeah. all yeah. we do is play, like, Texas Hold'em, which is fun, but, like, after a while, it's like, okay. You know? Yeah. Because, like, with Texas Hold'em, you have the one guy who just knows how to do statistics. Yeah. And he just wins. Yeah. Basically. How are you doing? I think that Same. answers your question. How are you How doing? How are you, I'm hanging in there. A uh, little bit tired. Relatively boring day at work. Uh, I've got some soup here. Soup, nice. soup. What soup? Uh, it's vegetable soup. Very vegetable. Like, like Italian vegetable soup? I, I wouldn't say Italian. I, w I would say just veg general, you know, your average vegetables. You know, you got your, your corn, your green beans, and the like. Okay. That's Potatoes, interesting. Potatoes, you know, vegetables. Yeah. yeah you Pro know. General proletarian vegetables. General... Podcast fuel, which is going to be one of the products that we start selling. We should make a soda brand called Podcast Fuel. It's going to be a soup brand. Oh, you know, yeah, that's better because soda brands are for gamers. Remember, wasn't that a thing, Gamer Fuel? Yeah, it was. We need to just give up on soda because reactionaries have taken it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Definitely. And soup is just better, honestly. So this is the soup podcast. My yes. gal, my soup, Rosa Luxemburg. Yes. And this week, the soup that we're drinking is chapter one of Reformer Revolution, the opportunist method. Booyah, folks. This Don't is where worry. we're getting... This, this will get better eventually. Don't worry about it. It'll get I, better. I'm going to personally apologize. I was basically... Um, see, the original mic that I had was a styrofoam cup attached to my phone with string, and I've gotten a better mic, and I promise to you, the listener, that we're going to get better every episode until we're just a shoegaze album by episode five. It's going to be really good audio quality. Yeah, Such good audio quality that likes shoegaze, it'll actually get to the point where it's harder to understand what we're saying. Yes, it'll go back to not being completely, like, inaudible. That's what yeah. we're aiming at. So anyways, opportunist method. The opportunist method. 
So the first paragraph's a really interesting paragraph. Who wants yes. to dig into it? I would hope that all of us would want to dig into it. But I, I could start. Um, her first sentence is great. If it is true that theories are only the images of the phenomena of the exterior world in the, in the human consciousness, it must be added, concerning Edward Bernstein's system, that theories are sometimes alternate images. I, I like, forgot oh. how great Rosa Luxemburg is at, like, writing and shit. Like, she gets the sassiness that, like, Mark, that Lennon had, but it doesn't feel shitty. Like, it seems completely yeah. hurt how, how patronizing she is to other people. Yeah, she gets that perfect balance, because Lennon is just an asshole sometimes. Yeah, and sometimes when you're reading Lennon, you just think about all of the people who read Lennon, and are like, well, this is how you argue as a socialist. You're a, an asshole until everybody likes you. Yeah, and I enjoyed that form of argumentation when I was 16, but it got old kind of quick, you know? Yeah. Yes. This starts to get into Rosa Luxemburg's, like, very amazing theory of... Theor Meta-theory, essentially. Her theory of where theories come from, which I'm a gigantic fan of. But what were you going to say, Jan? Well, actually, before we go into that, into my topic, yes. since I feel like yours is related, I'm curious what you think her meta-theory is in this case. So her... I think that, in the end, her analysis of Bernstein is that... Spoilers, by the way, for the later chapters. Is that he is representing like a bourgeoisification of social democracy that he thinks in the end his justifications do matter and she does go into quite some to quite some lengths trying to show why his justifications are for his theory are incorrect but that in the end these justifications are towards the end of creating a political party that is essentially um liberal Liberal, we would say now. She would not say that anymore. She would not have said that then. But yeah, yeah. What so are you going to say? Oh yeah, the part of this paragraph that I love. Think of a theory that of instituting socialism by the means of social reforms in the face of complete stagnation of the reform movement in Germany. Think of a theory of trade union control over production in the face of defeat of the metal workers in England. And honestly, when I read those two, I am instantly reminded of the fact that the two most resurgent organizations with the Trump bump are the Democratic Socialists of America and the Industrial Workers of the World. Arguably the most quincetotic possible organizations of one trying to push forward social democracy in the neoliberal era and the other trying to do militant extra legal trade unionism where precarity basically makes it impossible to do any form of workplace activity without the backing of the national labor relations board and of course the fact that both of those things kind of are existing now shows to a certain extent that uh, it does seem that human volition can push against objective conditions, or at least how successful things should be on the plane of objective conditions. And yeah, I still find the huge irony about the fact that a movement whose goal is to organize all workers into one big union exists when the vast majority of workers don't encounter a union on a day-to-day -day basis. And at that, all. Yeah, at all. And that, you know, our reformists are tr are talking about, you know, radical reforms where there are not even moderate reforms. Yes. Be careful. A lot of my friends from the DSA follow us. Yeah, I think, like, it does show a certain degree of, like, vibrance to the DSA oh, yeah. dynamism. Like, I don't mean, I'm more pointing out the kind of 
historical irony. I'm not necessarily saying this, ha ha, this is Rose the Plenic against the DSA. Yeah, that wouldn't really make sense. Yeah. Because, um, you know, obviously I think whatever you think of the DSA, it's doing something a bit different than what we think of in terms of, like, European social democracy or other forms of social democracy. Or even European, like, new social democracy and left populism. That said, I think that we could get on that tangent for a while, but let's get back on to chapter one, paragraph one. Yep, good point. Yes. She says, however, after saying, consider the theory of winning a majority in parliament, think of a theory of trade union control, she says, however, the pivotal point of Bernstein's system is not located in his conception of the practical task of social democracy. It is found in his stand of the course of uh, the objective development of capitalist society, which in turn is closely bound to his conception of the practical task of social democracy. And she's arguing, well, she says, ne next sentence, According to Bernstein, a general decline of capitalism seems to be increasingly improbable because on the one hand, capitalism shows a greater capacity of adaptation, and on the other hand, capitalist production becomes more and more varied. So what do people think about that as an empirical claim? Because we have lived in about 200 years of capitalism. Do you think it's accurate to say that capitalism, like Bernstein has claimed, has gotten more and more stable, or do you think Rosa Luxemburg's claim of either increasing instability or constant instability is a thing? But they're both right, and what is interesting, and I was thinking about this, is that what's, what Rosa Luxemburg and Bernstein are writing about is the end of what is considered now to be the first period of capitalism. Like, you know, whenever you write, like, I have a copy of Social Reproduction Theory, which I think is, like, a great... Probably the most excited I've been reading something since I started reading Rosa Luxemburg. Um, and I have, like, in the front page, a little schematic of the three eras of capitalism, which are neoliberalism, our times, welfare capitalism, which is the 20th century, and liberal capitalism, which is the time that Rosa Luxemburg lived in. And in the time that they were writing liberal or, you know, free market or, you know, 19th century capitalism was simultaneously disintegrating and starting to build the things that would turn it into welfare capitalism. Yeah. So, sorry, continue. No, I'm done. Yeah, and I think it's kind of interesting in terms of, like, so in terms of literal collapse style crises, like, for example, um, what caused the Russian Revolution was a collapse of capitalism, which literally the logistics of production distribution had been destroyed to the point where there was no bread in, to be distributed in the bread lines. And, you know, I think the closest analog, I think someone in you know, the audience will find this interesting that I bring this up, the closest analog we've seen to a capitalist system coming to the point of destruction and almost abort, you know, forcing itself into revolution would probably be you, Peru. You, oh, sorry, what? You cut out. Could you repeat what you were saying? Oh, okay. The closest analog I can think to, like, Russia in terms of a system coming to near collapse due to, like, an economic crisis would probably be at Peru, incidentally enough, insofar as, you know, when the Shining Path was taking over, were trying to take over, you had, like, a thousand percent inflation. You know, no one could buy food, and the market economy simply broke down because there was no real way to exchange goods and services for money. Yeah, I don't really think that kind of crisis is likely unless it'll be provoked by ecological disaster. Yeah. That being said, I don't think that capitalism has gotten rid of the boom and bust cycle. No, it hasn't. And in a lot of ways, it has gotten worse. 
Yeah. And the ways that ca- that the ways that capital the so Rosa Luxemburg's theory of capitalism sized not and taken back up in a couple of ways is that capitalism is inherently unstable because it inherently drives towards this bifurcation where the proletariat on the one hand exists and their labor is exploited and the capitalist class exists and owns capital, which leads to the issue of underconsumption. Because if, if you're being paid five bucks to create $10 worth of value, then who's buying the $10 commodity at the end point? Yeah. She argues that capitalism fixes this problem via imperialism that which allows it to continually expand into new markets and externalize its problems into those new markets you now have david harvey and david harvey arguing that we're living in a new era of that kind of capitalism with gentrification and like internalized imperialism happening um, so that's her, her theory of capitalism. I think that there are some aspects to which it's flawed. I don't think that there's ever been a point in time where the proletariat, the working class, was even a majority in most countries. That yeah. said, it leads to her conclusion, which is that capitalism, A, can't be reformed, and B, is inherently going to lead to some kind of crisis. Um, yeah, and I definitely think there's something interesting to kind of I think there are certain, so I believe even social credit um, economists kind of get into that um, basic problem. I believe it's the A plus B plus C problem. Yeah. And yeah, thank you. So, and the kind of answer from both Marxist economists and mainstream economists, which I think is half true and half wrong, is that first that surplus value, that difference between the five bucks and the ten bucks is convertible into investment, which in of itself is a form of expenditure that's circulated into the economy um, to a certain extent. But of course, then the problem is you can only really invest if there's a return, which again requires you to kind of go back to the drawing board in terms of A plus B and C. Yeah. That being said, that investment income does set off the obvious problem with what you think in terms of that. The other thing is imperialism, from what I've, or international trade to be kind of less specific, really seems to be more about exporting goods and services at above market prices in terms of above the capacity of an internal market and that's basically how export driven industrialization models work yeah that being said and you know that there's a sort of classical liberal idea of if every country has an export-based economic model then each country will specialize in the good and service which is cheapest to produce in each country the problem is that every country isn't a special little snowflake of production in many yeah, cases, it turns out that countries aren't created with like uh, class specializations, a la Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, and basically, in practice, what the universalization of the export-driven model is that you have, you know, okay, the internal market cannot buy these goods. Let's find a purchaser of these goods elsewhere. If basically every country is doing that, yeah, then there's nothing to keep it afloat. And in the current global financial system, the only thing that's keeping it afloat is the fact that the floating dollar makes the U.S. dollar capable of absorbing an insane amount of consumer goods from the global south. And to a lesser extent, the euro does this by kind of destroying the industrial um, capacities of all non-German and non-French countries yeah. and converting yeah. those countries into consumer markets for both yeah. German goods 
and international goods. Well, and you also see, and I mean, this is getting beyond the scope, but I would say that what the crisis of our current era, at least in the imperial core, like, you know, you look at Brazil and China and India, they don't seem to be doing as poor. They, they don't have the same, the same contradictions because they're essentially supplying this bubble. That said, within Europe and the United States and Canada and Japan, you have this very similar problem of, sorry, of creating industrial, uh, of, uh, of having a consumer-driven economy that exists simultaneously with either stagnant or decaying um, rate, rates of wages. And for 30 or so years, we basically got out of that problem by resorting to massive levels of debt at every level. Yeah. At the corporate, the, and 2008, because that, that model of why did I drink seltzer during a podcast? Who thought that'd be a good idea? Um, of creating this model of like your house, your car, things that you need, not things that are like kind of uh, other necessities are, are paid for with loans that have crazy interest rates. Yeah. All of that stuff that that bubble burst and because we there was not the political will to actually create a significantly different kind of capitalist development over the last decade what we have seen is nothing coming in to to square the circle of this problem yeah. which has led to basically an economy where the only actual consumers are the top 10% of any given area. And you can see yeah. this ev- Yeah, and you can see this everywhere. Like even like look at like from th- things as silly as like movie theaters. Movie theaters are in general going to a luxury model because only people who have like disposable income are people who are in the top 10ish percent. So why not double down on that? And instead of having like a $10 movie theater, have like a $30 movie theater that you have 3D and you have a recliner chair and you can get a $40 steak and wine meal. I've had on my mind, at what, at what point can I bring up um, Juicero? Because I feel like Juicero is in many ways a... Uh, perfect it's example. A, it's a perfect example of, of well, the, the number one of uh, the type of like luxury good that can only exist in this type of situation and also uh just a general example of the uh capitalist production becoming more and more varied obviously that's yes. the number one example that should be going to my yeah, mind right a, now that is a very good example like i'm literally my time is literally so valuable that i have a machine that that juices my juice for me not even as good as i would as a normal person would do it <laughs> <laughs> And I think something that's kind of interesting with this recent stock market um, kerfuffle, although it's recovered significantly in the last few days, is, and this really demonstrates how debt-dependent all sectors of the economy are, basically, with the potentials of interest rates going up due to the economy improving, despite that being, in theory, the economy getting better being a good metric of obvious economic growth, the fact that this growth was fueled so much by debt means that if interest rates go up, that would put a huge financial burden on almost every level of American life. Yes. Thus creating the panic sell-off yeah. of the recent stock market. And I don't think we're going to see a real panic sell-off until... Um, a, these interest rates go up more, they go up internationally. And, like, if you look at the other thing that caused this sell-off, it was um, in part because Apple had an earnings report, and yeah. they did very poorly. 
And as a result, a lot of their suppliers were doing poorly. If this crisis is as bad as the bears are predicting, which I'm not saying it is, but if it is, then what I'm predicting is that in the next earning report, we're going to see corporate debts increase and that the interest payments on those debts will do a significant dent to profits, which in turn will have another probably similar uh, stock market crash that we saw recently. So going back, Rosa Luxemburg had a theory of capitalism which inherently included crisis and inherently moved towards crisis. Bernstein believed that capitalism was coming out of this. Yeah. And no, (laughs) it's like amazing that he thought that in like 1901, like, oh, we figured this shit out. And to some degree he was correct because capitalism was building the kinds of uh, institutions that would eventually be the bedrock of what welfare capitalism would be. But welfare capitalism was also inherent, also had inherent contradictions, which led to our model, which also has inherent contradictions. So, but as Rosa also says, his theory is found in his stand on the objective development of capitalist society, which is closely bound to his idea of what the practical tasks of social democracy are. If you have a theory where the where capitalism is not going to collapse and is in fact becoming, if anything, more stable, whole socialist is to become just the administrator of that of that system. It is not to become a revolutionary against that system or to advocate for radical change of it. And this gets into a fundamental difference in their ideas of theory and practice. Over time, Bernstein would criticize Rosa Luxemburg of being too theoretical. And she would say, well, my theory informs my practice as does yours. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, your idea, and, and you see this argument nowadays a lot where it's like, yeah, but like, you know, it's too theoretical to talk about how, or it's too like, it's inaccessible theory to talk about how capitalism is inherently flawed. And it's like, hey, no, it's not. You can just be like, it sucks. And most people will agree. Yeah. But B, what argument are you proposing that's actually driving that argument? Like a lot of these things and have like explicit commentary behind them. Especially the sort of like a catch-all radicalism that's becoming more and more common, which does not have a positive alternative. That exists only as a critique. And if your job is to A, critique society, but B, say that basically it's impossible to make a movement that addresses these overarching social problems, and, you know, this, is, this sometimes comes in the term, you know, forms of denying the possibility of solidarity. There are many forms of it. Then the function of your critique becomes muddy. Yeah. And in this case, well, the function of Bernstein's critique is not very muddy at all. It's very clear. What the What's per- also... Yeah, what's also interesting is that Bernstein's, like, idea is something that drives a lot of theory, like, liberal theories of capitalism, where it's like, yeah, capitalism used to suck, but here's the the third paragraph. The capacity of capitalism to adapt itself, says Bernstein, is manifested first in the disappearance of general crises, resulting in the development of the credit system, from the development of the credit system. Whoops. Employers, organizations, wider means of communication and informational uh, services, and in the tenacity and creation of a larger middle class. And it's like, that's like the American story about capitalism. Like, yeah, it sucked, but now now we have the internet, and it's never gonna, it's never gonna bust, you know? 
It's like well, yeah, it's a modernization theory in a nutshell, invented by the Rand Corporation. Yeah. That basically a dysfunctional capitalist system is just a example of pre-modernity, and that coming into the modern is the act of creating a liberal democratic nation state. It's the end of history ideology of Frankis um, Frankis Fukuyama or how you say his name. Fukuyama. Thank you for pronouncing his name correctly. And you know, we've seen that a history does not end, and b there's definitely a regression taking place. And I think we've kind of, we've talked a bit about you know the credit system that we already mentioned, so we don't need to go over that at least in this line. But, yeah, liberal modernization theory is very interesting, and I definitely agree with you that Bernstein basically does it. And it's trying to say that, okay, if the basic social conflicts which created our movement do not exist, then how do we adjust our movement to be relevant in the time of social peace? Yeah. So... And then the next, and Rose's like, next paragraph kind of goes to this. Yeah. From this theoretical stand is derived the following general conclusion with the practical work of social democracy. The latter must not direct its daily activity towards the conquest of political power, the betterment of the conditions of the working class within the existing order. It must not expect to institute socialism as a result of political and social crises and must build socialism by a means of progressive extension of social control and gradual application of the principle of cooperation. Which is interesting because in that how how far did you read Bernstein, Jan, when we were doing this? Oh also by the way I'm Gene Allen. We didn't say our names. Whoops. Whoops. Oops. We're gonna get progressively better every every single episode, and there's gonna be no contradictions in this podcast. Um, I read um, complimentary literature about Bernstein. Um, yeah. I read a few articles about him. However, I did not. Oh, actually, I wanted to give a correction from the last um, podcast. Whoops! Bernstein uh, did vote against the funding for the German military prior to war authorization and opposed the war as it was going on. But at the war credits vote, he did actually vote for war credits. But, oh, okay. Yeah, but he did oppose the war, which is something that many social democrats didn't do. But I yeah. still do believe that podcast should aspire to a certain integrity if we are going to become the new way millennials and get media. So I'm going to correct on that. But, yeah, I've read a lot of the complimentary literature about Bernstein, but I have not delved into his works yet. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, no, it's just interesting that he said that, that she's arguing that his, she's saying his argument is that they should create cooperatives and expand, I don't know what social control means, but that that, like, is almost the more radical sentiment nowadays as opposed to the, as opposed to running in elections. Well, I mean, what social control means in this context is as I sort of said in the first episode, Bernstein's basic idea is that as society industrializes, it creates a basic pro-social impulse of people, of, you know, like, the contradiction between socialized production and privatized ownership. So Bernstein sees this contradiction resolving itself in the sphere of the political by it naturally leading to the expansion of democratic suffrage, which in turn, as democracy expands, as society is more socialized through the natural aspect of capitalism, by its nature, which in his case means the state, regulates production. Okay. This regulation, in turn, is effective socialization, because even if private ownership of some means of production exists, the capitalist becomes a mere administrator of what, in his mind, he sees a linear pro um, progression into 
a planned economy through trade unions exerting overwhelming control over production and through the state as a whole regulating the fairness of production, how it works. Okay. So so my idea of my idea of what his his thing is is like actually correct. I thought that for a second when I reread that I was like cooperatives. What the hell? But no. So Well yeah, because Bernstein to- in essence is the ultimate Democrat. He A seizes the rise of democracy as something that's inevitable to the capitalist system, as something that will replace violent class struggle as the main means by which politics is mediated. And since he sees this rise of democracy as inevitable, he sees it as basically extending itself to all matters of social life, to where society and the state are synonymous and the state rules over all life in the practical sense, and ergo, its universal expansion to day-to-day life is the socialization. Okay. So he's basically, the, as I said, the ultimate Democrat. It's kind of, I think Bernsteinism does make sense if you believe in the teleology of democracy progressing forward into infinity. In fact, I'd go as far as to say is if you could prove that history has a steady and quick pace towards infinitely increasing democratization, then Bernsteinism is probably the correct theory to have. But I don't think that inevitable pace towards a singular linear goal is a story of world history. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's just the, the opposite. I mean, basically, it's, it seems to me at least that, like, the period of, like, revolutionary social democracy in Germany is, like, one of the few times in history where the democracy, you know, was, like, relatively genuine and that one could actually in some way, con- you know, like, a revolutionary movement actually could potentially, you know, come to some kind of, like, real power through the ballot box, but it just seems that, that like, increasingly over time, just the democracy, you know, at, at least in, you know, the Western countries has just become, like, more and more hollowed out just through the, um, the, the whole, like, patronage system of, you know, the parties with nonprofits and lobbyists and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and more and more aspects of democracy being done not by, like, you know, during during a large portion of the Obama administration, the Congress was not, the, the majority of rules were not created by Congress. If you include regulatory rules as laws, which, you know, outside of a complete pedant, would a normal person would accept a rule, a regulatory rule that, that you know, you have to do something about tobacco or whatever as a law. The majority of laws created during the Obama administration were created by completely unelected federal federal bureaucrats. And that was also the same thing in large sections of Europe. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I believe the European Union has said the European president will never be in an elected position. And which and the European Union has basically said it outright that it will never concede to democratic reforms. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, Ber- yes, Bernsteinism would make sense in a world where you think that democracy is fine going up always. But he also has another assumption. Ber- you know, Bernstein... Ber- does not to quote uh, the next a couple paragraphs down. He does not merely reject a certain form of the collapse. He rejects the very possibility of col- collapse. He says textually, one would claim that by collapse of the present society is meant something else than a general commercial crisis worse than all others. That is complete collapse of the capitalist system brought about as a result of its own contradictions. To which he replies, with the growing development of a society of a complete and almost general and almost general collapse of the present system of production becomes less and less probable because capitalist production increases on the one hand the capacity of adaptation and on the other that is at the same time the differentiation of industry um and that it's that has like such an assumption about as 
capitalism develops, it becomes more adaptable. This idea that, um, sure, you don't have, sure, we don't have industry anymore, but everyone's going to learn how to, you know, become a barista, or everybody's going to learn how to code, and we're all going to become coders, which is fine. And it just doesn't, and looking back to the 19th century, that just doesn't even then seem probable that in becoming slightly more adaptable in differentiation in differentiating to the slightest degree you have resolved a general contradiction of all of capitalism seems nonsensical uh and furthermore the one easy mode thing that the modern left is is in is like obviously we should learn political economy but the burden to learn political economy is much less is previously the argument was or is the cycle of collapses inevitable or will they decrease? Now we know that civilization will collapse within a timeline. Yes. And that, don't yeah. need political economy to figure that out. Yeah, now, you don't need... Like, we don't need to, like, you know, try to figure out, you know, fucking linen compared to yard as Marx once would, to figure out, oh, yeah, you know, the Earth's going to fry in 100 years. Yeah. Well, and even this was even the case during the Cold War. Like, the idea that there won't be a general crisis, like, you know, we could have gotten nuked to into primitivism at any point in time during that period. And then after the 70s, it also became clear, like, hey, we're getting to the point that we're not going to be able to fucking reproduce human the human species because we have fucked up our environment so much yeah so i mean at the very least it makes it easy for us to reject bernstein's argument in fairness to bernstein probably did not anticipate ecological collapse as a thing at all or really non-capitalist crises because like yeah, the only, like fair. possible external collapse you could really have at this moment was either some religious thing or more a kind of Malthusian collapse of population growth outstripping technological expansion. That's really the only thing you could think of as a social collapse external to regular political economy. Even yeah. though Malthusian collapse isn't really completely external to regular political economy. But you get what I mean. Something that's not related to the boom and bust cycle. Yeah. Like, the only thing that could have happened at that point was a meteorite, and nothing would have fixed that. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, it's not fair. But at the same time, like, you can't see World War One as something that wasn't connected to the contradictions of capitalism at that time because the imperialism that led to World War One becoming inevitable was European countries trying to fix the contradictions of capitalism by exporting its problems to other countries. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, like, the final point before we can kind of, like, move on yeah. is... At a certain point, like, there's a certain catastrophism to this form of, like, revolutionary politic. And the thing is, like... On a certain level, the catastrophism invalidates certain arguments if it's economic, but really the basic idea of the catastrophe is that there is a catastrophe that delegitimizes ruling political forces and oppositional politics are able to use this delegitimization and the weakening of the political structure to abolish the old political structure. So, basically even if you don't have the literal economic catastrophism being true, catastrophism in general is true. And we don't even need the economics of it to be right at this point. We all, we like the idea that there's going to be a crisis. Like we basically have like political and social and geopolitical crises like every year that theoretically a mass movement could intervene in. Like imagine if there was like a mass movement like the size of like, you know, the Bolsheviks during the 
Ted Cruz's government shut down. Yeah. Imagine if there was one when Trump basically won despite losing the popular election. Like, yeah. That would have led to an immediate escalation of shit. Yeah. Like, the, the political system, inclusive of, of its economic components, but the political system just through its sheer malfunction generates crises which can be intervened upon politically. So the, the overarching system definitely produces politically intervenable crises, irrespective of economics. Like, even if we keep at, like, Trump level of economic growth for the rest of history, which is definitely not a thing that will happen, and that's not even an anti-Trump comment, that's just, like, no one thinks that could happen. Yeah. Not even Trump, because Trump knows what right-wing economics are. His son uh, probably thinks that. Yeah, but, you know. It's, uh, ben and Trump probably, probably thinks that. He's like 10, I think. Yeah. But like, even assuming the economy stays at its theoretically good performing state, we can predict political crises will happen and that they can be intervened upon. Although, as we said previously not necessarily in the sense that they will be a literal civilizational ending catastrophe due yeah. to economic yeah. malfunction. That is something that capitalism has fixed. Yes. So, and, and that leads to, and but it leads to Luxembourg's question, which is that like, you know, it can seem abstract. Like, is capitalism inherently contradictory or not? It can seem like it doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with how a, an organization acts. But she says, you know, very little reflection is needed to theory faces a false conclusion. But what lies the importance, uh, where lies the importance of the phenomena that are said by, like, where, where, why is this important? Obviously, ba, 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 ba. Got to get through. There you go. By presenting it in its capitalist form, basically what she's saying, okay, I got it. Basically what she's saying is that Bernstein's theory is that if capitalism is inherently going towards a less problematic and less contradictory direction, all that we have is to... Uh, add a socialist character to the industrial cartels or to the credit to the credit system or to etc etc and she calls this we have in here here in brief the explanation of the socialist program by means of pure reason we have here to use simplest language an idealistic exp explanation of socialism that you just kind of have these organizations become socialist by saying that they're socialist yeah and you'll create a better a good economy and the objective and she says here the objective necessity of the it's in bernstein's analysis socialism essentially becomes a word which means that the objective necessity for socialism as an actual economic system as an actual alternative to capitalism disappears because in Bernstein's definition, socialism is basically just capitalism. Yeah. I mean, yeah, basically. It's capitalism with a mutated political form, which is the inevitable result of capitalism. Yeah. Basically, he assumes that capitalism socializes itself through, the pro you know, through progress. And... Yeah. Like, Bernstein, you know, Bernstein actually was an anti-dialectician. He didn't believe in dialectics. But the interesting thing about it is you can kind of see the stereotypes of Hegelian theology of, you know, like, coming towards the pinnacle abstract idea and, you know, progress towards the idea being the goal of history. Like, he kind of seems to see that way. Like... Bernstein's premise really does lie on the idea of an inevitable progress towards democratization. Yeah. 
that's really the core component in addition to the crises thing. Although related to what Yuri said, uh, Rosa says a bit later on, but if one admits with Bernstein that capitalist development does not move in the direction of its own ruin, then socialism ceases to be objectively necessary. And the interesting thing is I'm not entirely sure if I agree with that because I, you know, to be honest, I really do think that let's say we had a version of neoliberalism and like what's what if we combine Keynesianism and neoliberalism insofar as you had um, you the credit markets were significantly more regulated to the point the credit swap thing where it didn't happen the harsh rules on payday loans still existed and all that stuff happened and the compensation for the A plus B under consumptionist problem was solved for like Keynesian expenditures. I think a certain amount of the broader economic crises would be mitigated, at least reduced in harshness. And furthermore, even with these ones, the worst political crises that we've had aside from the Great Depression, were things caused by the conscious actor, you know, conscious human actors acting on the world scene as opposed to the amalgamations of capital in of itself as this sort of hyper-alienated um, realm that regulates human activity around it. You know, like, the Middle East isn't fucked up hasn't been fucked over by the literal law of value. Rather, it's been destroyed by the logic of resource extraction and geopolitics in terms of protecting resource extraction. Like, a lot of our crises come from the acts of human actors, so they can't be put entirely on the internal law mechanisms of capitalism itself, which, like, if you read, like, the hard Marxists, they basically act, argue, like, a neoclassical position that human action cannot regulate capital crises. And yeah. well, I'd love to study the economics of it more, and I'm sure, Remy, you might disagree with me on this. And there's... Huh? On this podcast. Oh, my apologies. I'll edit this out. That's all, uh, okay. I, I just want to say, without realizing I'm reading chapter two, we're going to be talking about all of this again. And we'll figure out a way to do that. Yeah. Well, like, you know, Gene, you might disagree with me on this. And feel free to do it. And I guess we probably should have a few, well, you know, interview someone who more, who's more economically literate. But, you know, I think it is fair to say that ruin itself will be the result of concrete human action in addition to the amalgamations of capital. And, you know, pure capital itself isn't really going to detonate the, the nuke. Um, yeah. I, I think even despite that, there's still a case that a more humane system is possible. So I'm not sure if I agree with Rosa on that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, but again, I think that that's kind of attributing a thing that something that you couldn't have. Rosa Luxemburg, it's unfair, I think, to say that Rosa Luxemburg should have predicted nuclear warfare or environmental uh, crises, like, if that makes sense. Or um, geopolitics somehow worse than the scramble for Africa. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's not entirely fair to put that on her. That said, I do think, and I think that we should get more into a criticism of her stuff, and that will happen over the course of this, this as well as other uh, episodes. But at the same time, I, I can't help but feel that her conclusion, the conclusions that she draws, even if her method is like slightly off, are still fundamentally correct. Yes. And that said, I think that 
the ways that her method is off lead to her answer being off, which is something that we need to get into. However, within the case of this chapter, she ends with either reform revisionism is correct in its position on the course of capitalist development or, and therefore the socialist transformation of society is a utopia, utopia and the theory of the means of adaption of capitalism is false. There's the question. So with, so yeah, either capitalism can adapt itself into something inherently better and therefore, you know, the idea of socialism is basically a utopia or capitalism is contradictory regardless of what you do to it and revisionism is nonsense. That's our, our basic, op that's our, those are our basic options. Yeah, and the interesting thing about both of those theses is that both things happened. Um, yeah. <laughs> basically, capitalism is very adaptable, but not in the sense of adapting towards increased relative stability. Yes. Um, like, I don't think anyone can say, you know, put their finger on the 90s and put their finger on 2018 and say there has been a linear progression towards increased stability in the world. Um, and, yeah. Not that I was the 90s joke about music, but I and it is 11. It is almost midnight. Yeah. Um Although I did want to like make one last comment before I uh, wrap off on the catastrophism remark yeah. is I want to peel back from it insofar as, you know, as Keynes once said, in the long run, we're all dead. And even if I do think in the long run, all cri capitalist crises will come to an end, that doesn't mean that what is a crisis to the system is not a catastrophe for the people who live it. Because, you know, in the long run, they're dead. And fortunately, that long run can come much shorter than you think. So, yeah, any other remarks? Join our Facebook group, which you probably are doing, because that's probably the way that you got this podcast. That said, we're going to start doing other... Be, we're going to start doing other cool stuff on the Facebook group. And we'd like to thank... Beware Studios, or whatever the fuck, for the use of our, our theme song, which is, one second, which is Order Built on Sand. And I think that that's it. I think that that may be it. Yeah. 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 Yeah.